Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 22nd, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, Director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm happy to be joined on the podcast today by State Representative Travis Clardy. Coming to us by phone, Representative Clardy represents District 11 in the Texas House, which includes Cherokee, Nacogdoches, and Rust counties in East Texas. He's currently serving his fifth term in the Texas House, where during this session, he served on the Culture, Recreation, and Tourism Committee, and also, as we will discuss, on the Elections Committee, which was the center of a lot of action. Representative Clardy, thanks for taking time to be here today. Had a, had a chance to recover a little bit from such a busy session? Yeah, a little bit. Well, I want to start with the most current events. So late last week, Governor Abbott vetoed Article 10 of the state budget for the next two years, which is the part of the budget for legislative branch entities. Now, this was a a follow through on a threat to do so that he first issued publicly in a tweet on Memorial Day after Democrats broke quorum in order to kill the big voting bill, SB7. I want to talk to you about what you make of the big picture here. But first off, can you tell us what this veto means in practical terms from your perspective in the legislature? What's the, like, what's next? Practically, uh, we're still trying to figure out exactly what it means. This was, to my knowledge, an unprecedented move by a governor to this. You know, I think there's always been some question uh, of exactly what the land had to be as of the executive branch, and to my knowledge, it's been done to curtail or, or unfund one of the co-equal branches of government, whether the judiciary or the legislative, but uh, that's what we've got. So we're all trying to kind of parse through this. Uh, I really expect this to be more of a, you know, a, a sign of frustration when the governor first mentioned it, and I, which I understood, you know, that he had set uh, election uh, reform as one of his priorities, and so I could I could understand the the initial reaction, but I really didn't think that he would follow through. Well, you know, I, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're not alone in that. And, you know, it, it would be unfair to ask you to get in the governor's head. But I mean, I, I, you know, what do you think he's trying to accomplish here? Is this a signal just to the Democrats? Is it a signal to the legislature as a whole? You know, have you, I don't know if you've talked to your colleagues much about this. How, you know, how are people interpreting this? Well, I've talked a little bit. Um, more of them, uh, before he actually signed his final uh, veto on uh, Article 10. Uh, but beforehand, I think the general consensus, both uh, from Republicans and Democrats, was that uh, uh, some signal of his frustration that he wouldn't actually do it. Because, again, I, I'm having a very difficult political standpoint or from a, a, a policy standpoint uh, of how this is supposed to help things for us to come back and have what I really hope to have and, and certainly hope to have before his veto. And that is a productive special session where we address some real needs uh, for Texas and, and that's deal with some significant issues which we weren't able to complete during the regular session. So I don't see where this helps that at all. 
I think it causes a lot more open questions. And frankly, it seems like we've been spending a lot more time spinning our wheels of, well, how do we deal with this issue in a special? What's going to be on the call? And how do we work around this and take care of the folks that, uh, honestly, Jim, you know this, the, the staffers that take care of us. I can get by without the $600 a month that we get as a state representative and all of us to me that that's a constitutional provision. That's not part of what's being cut. People are being hurt, and particularly for those staffers for Republican members like myself who had no role or desire or took any actions which led to the, the quorum being broken by the Democrats. It, it seems like we're, we're trying to kill a a flea with a sledgehammer. Yeah, and, and it also it winds up paralyzing a lot of the other bodies, you know, related to that are that do the bureaucratic work of the le- legislature yeah. and that are doing things that are important and moving forward on the things that are still unresolved, it seems to me, right? Yeah, yeah. And honestly, Jim, I mean, you use the term bureaucratic. I, I would, that, that does uh, carry with it some negative connotations for a whole bunch of people. Uh, but what it does do affect other other people who really do important work for the state of Texas, support work, support staff, for the legislative branch, whether that be the legislative budget board or ledge council or or other organizations uh, that really you know, provide that you know, fabric, that that uh, kind of level of resource that we need to do our jobs effectively, those people are being impacted by this, and you know they they serve Texas. Uh, this is their livelihood. Uh, they all have bills to pay and house to feed, just like the rest of us. So I, I don't really I don't really understand. Why this was done, I, 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 I guess I can see where it could perhaps apply some uh, pressure to uh, see that the session finishes productively. But again, I, if this is all about what happened on the second to last night of the session in the Texas House when the you know majority of the Democrats uh, you know, walked out and broke quorum for the last couple of hours, uh, I really think that's an issue best handled by the House. Uh, I think that Speaker Phelan and uh, those of us who actively work on and want to see a quality elections bill pass and, and other measures that the governor sees fit to put on the call, we can handle our our internal House discipline fine on our own, thank you. Uh, I don't think we need a, a heavy hand from the executive and his force or high pressure uh, to accomplish the goals that we have in front of us. I think we can do it very well on our own time, in our own way, under our own rules. We do like, and I think uh, uh, all Texans like our branches, our, our three equal branches of government, of being independent and acting on their own. And, you know, if we've got a problem in our house, well, it's our responsibility to fix it. And I, I think that we can. So, uh, but I, I don't know what this portends for the coming special, whenever that may be. I don't know what effect this has on the Democrats and their willingness to participate. And, and to come back for the special session, you know, they broke quorum for a couple of hours during the regular. But does this motivate them to stay away uh, completely, uh, do what happened back in 2003 and leave the state and get outside the jurisdiction of Texas and, and uh, you know, not allow us to make a quorum? I would hope not. But to me, this action makes that more likely than less likely. I, I, I was not concerned at all about the Democrats you know, not coming back for a special session. I think that they they made their point. They wanted an opportunity to, to uh, see the bills, study the bills. We certainly were going to do that. We were certainly going to address any concerns that were that were there uh, with then SB seven, but what will be the the elections bill uh, that we can with? 
Now I don't know how this really affects decisions that uh, our colleagues may make. You know, there's already there's already discussion of and from more than one angle of people challenging the governor's veto on a separation of powers principle, which frankly I I think is a legitimate uh, issue to, to to be looked at. Like I said, I'm I'm just surprised we're even having have this conversation. And that, you know, we're going to be maybe looking to the courts to resolve an issue when really all we need to do is set a date and come back to work. And, you know, in a way, I mean, timing becomes really important here. I mean, once again, we're up against something of a deadline, even for court action, given that the fiscal year start that this budget applies to starts relatively soon. And so this is going to have to be ironed out if it's not going to impair the work of the legislature in the fall knowing that we have to that, that you have to come back for an October special session for right. redistricting, right? Right. Well, and that's one of the things that, that Jim, I did say I was uh, overly chagrined. Uh, yes, I would have liked to have had the opportunity to pass SB7, have it to a vote uh, on the floor before the end of the regular session. Uh, we had, had learned that there were a couple of issues that needed to be addressed, which we could have fixed with uh, technical changes, which was, wasn't really an opportunity to amend the Conference Committee report on the floor, but could have been addressed and technical corrections after the bill's filed. But, you know, we didn't get that opportunity. But at the same time, I also was well aware that we would be coming back sometime before the budget cycle started, September 1 of 2021, because of the, the, the federal monies that we anticipate coming in and we'll, we'll deal with in the supplemental appropriations. Going to have that session. We also knew we've all been acutely aware that because the, the U.S. Census Bureau hasn't provided the, the, the apportionment uh, figures, the, the detailed statistical information to, to uh, draw the lines and redistricting, that we were also going to be coming back in whether that's September, or October. So we knew we were coming back at least twice uh, on two significant issues. So. Yeah, well, when we got back, we could fix this and any other issues, like I said, that the governor has the exclusive prerogative of placing on the call. But this veto of Article 10 just seems to add a complication or a wrinkle that I've not seen how it is productive or helpful uh, and potentially could be harmful in, in having the kind of working relationship that's really integral to the legislative process working. You know, you raised the point that it, it complicates an already complicated situation. And, but the linchpin at this point doesn't, you know, with or without the veto seem to be movement on SB seven. And I was interested to hear you say that, you know, you thought that some of the, the problems might've been fixable through the amendment process on the floor in, in the final moments or in the final hours. Of course you didn't get that opportunity, but that does raise the question of, you know, what would be a bill that both, Republicans on the whole would find acceptable and Democrats, I mean, I, I think acceptable would be too strong a word, but but the Democrats would not find so offensive that they would resort to sort of the kind of escalation that we saw in the in the last session. You know, you became right. kind of a, you know, a star on NPR in the interview in which you chalked up two of the more controversial elements of the bill to kind of mistakes and muddled work on the conference committee. That would be the limiting voting hours uh, on Sunday to after 1 p.m. and judges being able to overturn election evidence results based on, and quoting from the bill, 
the preponderance of evidence. It seems to me you've been pretty clear that those two things, you know, just setting aside whether, you know, the degree to which this is a mistake or, you know, just what happened, although I'm curious mm-hmm. about that. How confident are you really that you could get to something that both sides would find at least digestible, if not great, you know, assuming there's not going to be a a consensus. What has to be in there? Yeah, I'm confident that we can get to a bill and we'll get to a bill that will go to the floor and that there will be a record vote on. And I'm confident that bill will pass. I'm also uh, very confident that it will be a bill that will largely pass, if not uh, entirely pass, on a partisan line vote. And it's not because of the specifics that we're in the SB7, I will say, as envisioned by myself and my fellow conferees, we tried to craft it, file timely, and, and put before the the, uh, the body in the conference committee report. We put a lot of time and effort into it, but I think that what we're really battling against and getting uh, a bipartisan support of the bill is the fact that SB7 at that time, and hopefully we can escalate uh, some of those tensions by you know, further review and explanation and having our all of our colleagues, both Republican and Democrat, have the opportunity to review it uh, well in advance of being put to a vote. Uh, but SB7 had taken on kind of a mythic proportions. That it, it, it has a, the, the perception, I think, was very, very different from the reality of what we wanted to put forward and intended to put forward, and which was largely in place in the conference committee report. You know, you, you mentioned that there were a couple of things that we had issues with. You know, there, there was no desire then nor now, and, and the proof will be in the pudding, to limit the hours. In fact, we wanted to expand the hours for Sunday voting uh, for the proverbial souls to the polls. It has always started at 11. That's where I wanted to leave it. That's where we all wanted to leave it. But it came back to what? I really am at a loss to explain some of those things. Uh, likewise, we've always had laws in Texas to deal with election contests. Those have been on the books forever. It's been used very infrequently. And the standard's always been clear and convincing evidence. Uh, that was one of the things that, that, that I fully expected to stay in the bill. But there was some, some movement in the final version. That's where I think some of the bills have been filed around the country. And I think the original file, SB7, that was filed in the Senate by Senator Hughes, there were some, in my view, some problematic areas that... Uh, would have caused problems uh, in, in the context of a judicial review. Uh, they weren't really going, you know, they, they may have been well-intentioned, but they weren't really going to cause problems in the real world, rubber meets the road, boots on the ground, running elections in the state of Texas. And so we worked hard to, to uh, develop a bill that, like most legislation, starts off with some ideas and concepts and over the process. You know, some of the rough edges are filed off to make it more, more appropriate, more useful, more palatable, uh, and try to build a broader consensus. That's, that's the way we have governed in Texas, is not to try to, to uh, file a bunch of bills that let's, we can do it and let's just power through because we have the numbers to do it and, and shove it down people's throats. Elections should be, uh, and the laws that affect elections, should be nonpartisan, bipartisan. And that's that's really was, was uh, certainly my intention. And and will be when we come back to the special. I'm not trying to relitigate the account, but what I think would be helpful to listeners, and particularly some of the students that I know are listening to this, mm-hmm. because we make them, would be to hear a little something about the process. And I'm not saying like, you know, name names, but describe sure. what goes on behind the scenes. Like who is hands-on responsible for what goes in a bill 
in this kind of a tense last minute situation where you're putting together large pieces of legislation with a lot of interested parties in with the clock ticking very loudly. In other words, you know, how does it happen that the bill comes out and there are things and people are still kind of going, Oh, Hey, where did that come from? Well, it's, it's kind of funny. It's not too dissimilar from the old, uh, school of rock cartoon of, you know, I'm just a bill. Uh, (laughs) it's really that process. And, uh, you know, I was very honored and pleased and, and thoroughly enjoyed my experience of, of serving on the elections committee in the house. And so the committees are formed. Uh, most people are on there. It's where they want it to be. That's a passion at each of the members, uh, wherever they may be from the state, regardless of party affiliation. And so people have different ideas of bills. And in this instance, you know, our, our chairman want you know there was a we knew this was on the, the emergency items or, or, or you know, key areas that the, the governor Abbott wanted to see approached. And I mean, all of us knew that. Uh, after the events of last November and the, and the things that followed, elections were going to be a very uh, hot issue that closely closely looked at, and there were expectations of that there were things that need to be done to continue to protect the integrity of Texas elections. So, with that as a backdrop, you know what what you do is people get to come forward, and we had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people come forward and provide their testimony and input of what they think the bill should be, and some maybe stakeholders that are involved in the process, whether it be the Secretary of State's office or Office of Attorney General for Voter Integrity and Election Integrity. It may have been from county clerks or elections administrators from around the state, but also just regular Texans that have opinions. And so all of that input does matter. I mean, that's that's the good news is that we do listen. We do what we're saying. And we listen to our own constituents, and I will listen to my own elections administrators and uh, what's good, bad, or indifferent, and then we try to, to uh, uh, identify places where the law can be strengthened and if there's outright, you know, glaring omissions or problems. From my point of view, uh, we have a strong body of election laws in Texas, but there's always room for improvement. Uh, you know, one of the issues, more to my experience, uh, but, you know, after I heard a lot of the testimony, um, it's just, again, to me, it, it tries to be the wrong way that we actually contemplate and allowed to spring up a, a cottage industry of, of voter harvesting in the state. Uh, that people get paid to go chase down ballots that have been requested by mail and make sure that those ballots get returned. And the level of influence or court assistance that is provided to the people who may or may not have requested these ballots by mail, it's the area where we all know, and I've known since I first got elected, that it's, it's the place in our election bill probably the most life or mischief. That, that things could happen. And we know this has happened in real elections in real time. But, you know, there, there is not some rampant epidemic of voter fraud. And it does happen. Uh, there are cases pending that are being prosecuted. Interestingly enough, a lot of that and a lot of the problems we've seen has not always happened. In fact, more often than not, it does not happen in the November election contests of uh, you know, Republican versus Democrat. It happens in primaries, and it happens in nonpartisan election races or uh, political subdivisions races. So election has more to do, uh, election law has more to do and to be concerned with than just the presidential election every one year. And I think that's something that, that I think people do lose sight of. It, uh, uh, sometimes uh, it's hard to do this, but in Texas, we I think we do a good job in state government. I think we do a good job of being responsible to the citizens of Texas, but sometimes the issues that are more 
lost in translation because the national narrative, which drives much of the discussion and perception, it it's it's it, 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 on this kind of mythical portion, and and then it is imputed to what goes on in Texas. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a it's you know it's it's a process. You know, how do we get there? Well, I get the yeah that we meet and we listen to people. Well, I get that there's a there's a there's a lot of surface to the issue and that that you know and, and that argument. I guess what I was wondering more specifically in this case also though was in the final moments of assembling this bill, is it is it the conference committee members emailing drafts to each other? Is it in that final analysis where there were you know the, the final provisions that were put in there, some of which weren't in either of the other bills? as I understand it. Is that interactions happening among the conference committee members? Is it mostly the chairs? No, it's it's among the conference committee members, and it, it, is, it is done um, largely uh, in person. Uh, but, you know, you, you have to have... It's important to have, you know, to build that and too many cooks spoil the brawl. Yeah. Uh, don't forget, if it was just left to the... House, if it had been just left for the House conferees to draft this up, get to a final version, and get it filed, I don't think we would have had as much difficulty. But the way our system works, it's a bicameral legislature, <laughs> and which is entirely appropriate. The Senate had different approaches and some different priorities, and so that's that is the nature of a of a um, uh, why we go to conference. Right. We don't like all of your amendments, they don't like all of our amendments, so we go and meet and try to do that's better done face to face. But, uh, you know, and one of the challenges of SB7 uh, coming down the stretch before we got to the conference committee report is this was a, as they say, an omnibus bill. It had taken on a bunch of additional pieces and parts from other legislation to make it a comprehensive uh, election bill. Things were added. There were a number of things added. A lot of them intended just to, when you take this significant portion with this over here, there's some bridge language, some harmony um, of those within the within the election code framework. So, but I will tell you, the, the folks we work with, our staff and uh, the elections committee, working with Kane and having because these are uh, important legal issues, and there is some likelihood of uh, having uh, that uh, the bill, if and when passed, uh, would be subject to uh, federal court scrutiny. Uh, that. You know, you, this isn't one of these. You know, this is not naming a memorial highway. Uh, right. <laughs> this is going to this is going to be looked at with with a high level scrutiny, as it should be. Again, there's nothing I think more important to the fabric of our nation and to our state than open, free, and fair elections. And so they should be scrutinized. That's you know that's uh, and with, but with that anticipation, first rule of a lot of things in life is don't be stupid. And so. <laughs> Uh, let's take a look at how what we're crafting here, and does this make sense? And so, you know, we would, and and obviously, Jim, there's some things that I can't go into without uh, running running afoul or running the risk of, of waiving uh, privileges with counsel. Sure, but you know, the, which we enjoy with the legislative council, which help us with the drafting, but also with our parliamentarians, and also, you know, with outside counsel and people who are experts in the field. That uh, you know, we we try to avail ourselves of all those resources, but. Like anything else, the more people you involve, uh, the more complicated it gets. And uh, and then when you're up against some time constraints, which we obviously were complicated, and, and a few things that don't quite you know, flange up uh, as neatly and nicely as we would have liked them to. So I'm not as frustrated maybe as some of my colleagues coming back to, to special session. I'm actually looking forward to it because 
Uh, I feel very strongly. We we did work together and put together, I think, a very good constructive piece of legislation with the intention of, of keeping Texas elections fair. I, I'm high confidence in the results of the last election in November uh, of 2020. I think the proof was in the pudding here, and I think our intentions of what we want to do uh, with the election reform bill that we passed a special, the proof will be in that pudding. So we've talked a lot about things that, you know, were, were I don't want to say you, you were enthusiastic on the election stuff, but you mentioned that, you know, another reason you were okay to some degree with going back to a, to a session and maybe not to put word, particular words in your mouth, but a little frustrated with the added factor of the veto of the legislative article is that you thought there were other things that were still left to be done. What else would you like to, to work on since you're going to come back? Well, I will tell you, uh, of course, I, I think it's appropriate. Uh, the legislature does control the, the first strings. That it's, uh, I've seen 16, I've seen 18 billion, but I think 18 is the right number of federal dollars over the last COVID that is coming into Texas. And that's a significant amount of money. I don't care who you are, but in, in light of the uh, you know, relative to the Texas budget and decisions need to be made there. So that obviously needs to be on the call. Uh, another issue, Jim, that I want to recall, I'll be working on letters tomorrow and I get back to, to Austin and back into Texas, is to uh, let's take a harder look uh, at our energy reliability. I think that uh, the week or so ago, and the advisors who went on energy usage, it causes me great concern because, yes, it was a little warm in June, uh, but uh, I think it is foreseeable and not a newsflash to say it's going to be hotter in July and August in Texas. And I don't have the confidence that I would like to have that we are ready to withstand another challenge for our electrical grid and, and uh, system in Texas. And so I'm going to be crafting letters and sending this to the governor and the speaker and PUC and ERCOT. And I think there's some easy things that we could do on the short term to be ready so we're not faced with, with uh, brownouts or blackouts. I would find that inexcusable. Now, did we do good work in this past session? My classmate, Abby, led the charge in the House. Uh, to, to pass some good legislation, but to my view, it, it was primarily focused on winterization and more accountability for ERCOT and PUC and changing their fundamental structure, all of which I supported were good measures. Uh, but I really don't think we have grappled in a way, and this, this, this little um, uh, shot across the bow we've got in June tells me that we, we better have, and I think the people of Texas would expect us to have, a real plan or what happens if we have exceptionally hot temperature for a long period of time this summer? You know, how, how do we make sure that the, the hospital's power is on and our assisted living nursing homes continue to have power and that, that uh, people aren't subjected to excessive heat for long periods of time? Because they, this is a truly life-threatening um, uh, possibility. And again, the notion that it's going to be hot in July and August is not just foreseeable. That's a virtual certainty. So now's the time. We've got time to do it, and I would hope that's going to be on the call. So what? So so what do you think? What do you think gets that done? Briefly, in other words, what what didn't you know? What didn't get done that you would suggest needs to be laid out more specifically? Specifically, I think there's some uh, rules that could be relaxed as to what generating units can produce at what levels. We do have a deregulated market for uh, electrical generation in Texas. I think though that we do need to have some additional emergency powers to act to make sure that those units stay online. And I, I think that the simplest, fastest way to do this, and again, this is in an extreme emergency situation. You know, I know we have been making a, a, a really concerted effort in Texas to move away from our uh, 
reliance, as I say, 20 years ago, coal-based energy. And I think that's been an appropriate thing to do. And we now have, been, and I think by all accounts, the most diversified sources of energy of any, any state in the union, you know, both thermal and non-thermal. But we have seen a problem with the reliability of some of the non-thermal power. And so we need to, in an emergency basis, I would, I would propose, or what someone will suggest in my, my letter, that we look at uh, taking some of the coal fleet that we have taken offline and incentivize those companies that own them, that they're, they're there, they're present. It's the most reliable short-term fix that we can do in the next month to six weeks. We have 5,000 megawatts standing by, uh, ready to go, not to be turned on just for the fun of it, but only in those um, dire circumstances where, where the grid is threatened or we're, we're looking at a loss of power, you know, in, in sectors of the state. So, again, you know, no one is suggesting that, that any kind of return to coal is the optimal uh, future of power in Texas, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like SB7, Jim. We, we got up against the clock, and, it was, and we didn't have the time to fix the things that we would like to have been able to fix. Well, I don't want to get back up against the clock again like we did this winter. And we have time to put together some some uh, uh, reliable backup plans in place that would let us literally weather the summer, weather the storm, and then um, and then we can come back and look at later. But I think there's going to be a greater resistance and a greater pushback when people go to their light switch or try to turn on their ceiling fan or try to get their air conditioner to run for a few hours and nothing happens. Well, I think that the it's very much on the public's minds and 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 to be frank, I think our you know our polling showed that the public is still a little skeptical that enough has been done to ensure the reliability of the grid. So, you know, whether yeah. those specifics are what people are asking for, it's a complicated issue. I think there is an audience for more action by the legislature that would help with the reliability of the grid. Well, suffice it to say, I share that skepticism, and particularly for the, and particularly for the coming two or three months. It's like, okay, let's let's get through summer, let's get to the fall, and let's look at some long-term solutions. But I just don't think we've really addressed, to my knowledge, in the last several summers, we have come pretty close to times we've actually exceeded the quote capacity available. You know, I'm reading numbers over it. We've got 15 percent or 16 percent reserve capacity for the summer. But these are the same people that told us we had more than adequate uh, capacity during the uh, winter storm URI. So pardon pardon my skepticism, and I hope they're right. But I think we better have a plan. So so your question was, what do I want to focus on in um, special? I think that needs to be it. I just hope we get the special soon enough that we can not be in the middle of it when the problem arises, which is the reason I'll be sending my letter to uh, sending my letters off to the powers that be, and hopefully they they find a receptive uh, a receptive ear somewhere. And you have not, you said earlier, just to come, you and you've not heard anything reliable on on the timing of the session of the next special. No, I, I mean I think we all know it's going to happen before September one because, like you said, that's the budget cycle. I don't think it's going to happen until the fourth. I don't think that. You know, the, no, I'm not in the know. Everybody asks me the same questions. Like I'm going to know anything better than. You know, John Q. Public or any other, anybody else in Texas. But I, I really think what we'll do is see a uh, sometime into July, picking a date, I'd say probably July 26. That way we could finish, have a few days extra if we need to wrap something up before September 1. But And, and again, then we, and, and if there's things that we don't address outside of the budget issues, 
which I hope will include a, a, a correction to this, uh, you know, Title Nine uh, or Article Nine uh, veto of the legislative branch. If we get that done, we have a few other things still left on the table. I, w- I would hope we get the election bill done in this first special, but. You know, honestly, Jim, we could do that in October in addition to redistricting, and that would be fine. You know, we, we've got an election in November, but it's not a, a constitution uh, yeah. amendments, and then the primaries will be next spring. So we've got time to do that in either session. So I just want us to make the, the best use of the time that's available, and I hope we can do it without any real distraction that I think the legislative budget veto fear may have caused. Well, I got to say, you're you're one of the few people I've talked to that is enthusiastic for a special session. So, hats <laughs> off, hats off to you on that. Well, thank you very much for taking time to be here. I we really well, appreciate thank you, it. Jim. I do try to be ever the optimist, although sometimes my my patience does get strained. But I do thoroughly enjoy serving the Texas legislature, representing the House District 11, and you know, look forward to getting back to and Hopefully, get to see well on the. Well, I hope to see you when you're back on the ground here, sir. Thanks again for doing this. Enjoy the rest of your day. I also want to thank our technical crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Representative Clardy for taking time. And we'll be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 